This episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Texture. Texture's offering our listeners a 14-day free trial when you go to texture.com slash weeds. It's also sponsored by MeUndies. Use their special URL, MeUndies.com slash weeds, and get 20% off your first pair. And by CISO. Go to S-E-E-S-O.com right now to sign up for one month free with promo code WEEDS at checkout. We're so close. So close. Incredibly close. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, the policy show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined as usual by Sarah Cliff, and also by uh, Dar Lind, who has been with us before and is uh, filling in for Ezra Klein. Incredibly who, popular Vox um, Weeds guest host, Probably Darlin, our most in-demand guest star. Um, so really glad to have you here. Thanks to everyone who keeps Oh, and I have a thank you on. to give to um, one of our listeners, Mary Claire, who mailed me the most amazing present. She heard this graph. I talked about a lot. My favorite Obamacare graph showing the popularity ratings being stagnant over time. And she sent me a hand cross-stitched version of this graph that is literally my most prized possession in my office right now. So thank you so much. And if you want to see a picture of it, you can go on my Twitter feed. It is amazing and awesome. And I'm so, so thrilled to have If it. other listeners have favorite policy charts that they would like to hand stitch, uh, send them in. Uh, we could maybe make a quilt someday. Ooh, it could be it could be lovely. Chart. We're, you know, want to get more more into crafts here as well as as sort of the, the policy stuff. I also wanted to say, I think some people have probably noticed there's been some uh, movements around on the, the sort of the back end technically of the show we have a new uh, soundcloud page up so if you go to soundcloud we are at vox dash the dash weeds um, and you will be able to find us there as well as uh, in the itunes store and other places fine podcasts are available um with that right. said let's do a podcast now Yesterday, in the late afternoon or early evening, uh, Donald Trump decided in a gesture of bipartisanship and magnanimity that he realized uh, Democratic criticisms of James Comey's handling of the Hillary Clinton emails um, were really on the mark and that he was going to dismiss Comey in favor of an unspecified new director who would restore credibility to the office. And I guess nobody really believes that that is what's going on. Well, one of the crazy things that's happening in here and all the reporting is every story we've seen coming out of the White House has White House aides saying, actually, that's not what's going on. I think there's a Josh Dossie story in Politico, other stories in The New York Times, where you have aide after aide giving interviews saying, actually, he was pretty agitated about this Russia stuff. And that's been one of the most surprising things for me to watch about this coverage, that it's not just outside observers creating this narrative that there is something else going on here. And obviously, like, the timeline is not super hard to piece together, but that you've seen people from within the White House, even more so than from Congress at this point, like you've seen a few Republican legislators, you know, speak out on this, but not a lot. You know, just before we started taping, McConnell was giving some remarks to reporters where where he was basically lining up with Trump that a lot of the not even pushback, but the like discussion of like why the reasons given in the letter might not be true are coming from the people who work for Donald Trump in the White House. I mean, to start with, it comes from Donald Trump himself, right? In his cover letter to Comey, he goes out of his way to say, while I appreciate you telling me on three separate occasions that I was not under investigation for Russia, like 
that's a not something that anyone expected him to, you know, that he needed to say. And it's very easy to imagine a world in which that just goes through one other editor who strikes out that line and everything that is facially presented is unified on Comey. And in that world, you can understand reporters might not put that line into their stories. They might not do the follow-up interviews. White House aides might feel a little bit less free to go on background and say, yeah, he's been yelling at the television every time they talk about Russia. It's, I think what we're seeing is Trump's absolute impulsiveness here kind of getting in the way of what might otherwise have been a slightly more facially legitimate and probably harder to critique firing. But but you also see the abasement of a lot of congressional Republicans over this, that if the Trump White House had made a real effort to sell this lie, then when you have Chuck Grassley or Lindsey Graham or Mitch McConnell coming out there and repeating it, you would say, you know what, I think maybe these guys are engaged in a little willful suspension of disbelief. But I understand, you know, we all sort of perceive the world through our partisan filters. You would like to believe that your party's president isn't out there telling ridiculous lies. But the way I mean, for one thing, he he like lampshaded it with that second paragraph in the in the email, as, as you're saying, right, where he's like, got this letter. And then the second paragraph is like, this totally isn't a Russia cover up, guys. And you don't you don't do that. I mean, that's not how you fire people from any kind of job. Um, and then second, as, as Sarah was saying, the whole White House senior staff like went immediately to their sort of go to reporter friends and were like, yo, he's pissed about Russia. Um, so then you have I mean, some Republican senators, Jeff Flake and others have been have been critical of this move. But the ones who are supporting Trump are out there defending a line from the White House that even the White House is not genuinely pushing. I mean, they've got it out there. It's it's more like they're trolling, you know, than that they're trying to convince anyone. And it it reminds me of the stunt during the campaign where at Trump's kind of low points amidst the sexual assault accusations and the the audio confession, they brought out the various Bill Clinton accusers, which didn't answer the charge in any way. It didn't like make any kind of logical sense, but it gave people who didn't want to defend Donald Trump's conduct but did want to play for Donald Trump's team, something to talk about, that they could attack Democrats' hypocrisy, they could attack Hillary Clinton's hypocrisy. And, and you've seen this now. I mean, I think you saw John Cornyn had a tweet, uh, Rich Lowry had a tweet where they're like, it's funny to see all these Democrats leaping to James Comey's defense. And like, yeah, it's it's funny. And it's just a kind of chum in the water. It's not a it's not a real explanation. I mean, nobody is stupid enough to believe that Donald Trump uh, is really steamed that James Comey uh, violated prosecutorial guidelines by sending that letter back in October. Like, it's it's ridiculous. But it's like a talking point that people can latch on to if they don't give a fuck. I mean, I do think there were also reports last night that the White House expected because they had picked on something that Democrats were also mad about, they didn't expect anyone to be super mad that Comey got fired, that they were genuinely surprised when all of this blowback happened, which like, 
A, this is another thing where if they'd just done due diligence and had a couple high profile meetings with Chuck Schumer about like the direction of the FBI and wanting to, you know, make sure that everything that it had regained public trust, it's very easy to see them doing this in a more competent way. But also, this makes sense if you assume that Democrats problem isn't with Donald Trump, it's with the election, right? Donald Trump handed out electoral maps for his first 100 days interviews, right? Every single time he's criticized, he goes back to the election, he goes back to crooked Hillary. The idea that the problem that, you know, Democrats or the hashtag resistance more generally has with Trump is that he's governing, not that he beat Hillary Clinton, doesn't, it might have occurred to them, but it doesn't appear to be the way they understand the political landscape, right? They, The idea that given the choice between Trump and Comey, Democrats would pick Comey doesn't appear to have occurred to them. And I think that if they're going to make fewer unforced errors where even some people on their own team are calling for a special prosecutor and where, you know, everything, every time they get any kind of victory on cable news, they ruin it by turning the story into, into Russia again, they're going to have to understand that there are actual, that even though Donald Trump thinks that the point is that he won, there are other problems that other people have with his governance. So one of the things I feel like is hard to cover as reporters about this and generally like more speaking more broadly about the Trump administration is just like the frequency of lying. And Matt wrote about this earlier today. And this kind of fits into a broader pattern of Trump, led by Trump, and, and now we see kind of going out to other people in his administration of saying things that we just like know are not true. Uh, this has been – and it's been a struggle on my end because this keeps coming up on healthcare, where Tom Price will go on a Sunday show and say absolutely nobody will lose Medicaid under our healthcare plan. And that's just like a straight-up lie. You can't cut $800 billion from Medicaid and have people not lose coverage. And it's become like – in a weird way, something that's very routine in this administration, like, you know, when you see this letter laying out, like, well, here's why we're firing Comey. It's part of this larger pattern. And it, I think it's one that it is hard to stay, like, alert and aggressive on. And it it has been very different for me than covering the Obama administration, which I found, like, certainly would exaggerate how their policies would work or downplay the downsides of things. But it's really been taken to a new level and feels very pervasive in the way that this administration does communications. Right. I mean, it's not just Trump. It's not just Sean Spicer and Kellyanne Conway. It's people like Price who, you know, before he was in the executive branch, had a reputation as being the sort of policy person who would who would know these things, who would understand right. the trade-offs like who involved. understands healthcare. Right, right. Like, it, that memo was written by Rod Rosenstein, who when he was appointed, when he was named to be deputy AG, a lot of people who had been very concerned about the Trump administration's apparent contempt for the rule of law went, oh, phew, like he's he's taking this guy who's been a very widely respected U.S. attorney in Maryland, who has a particular reputation for not believing that anyone is above the law. This is a very good pick for him to make to reassure people that he actually cares about going about things the right way. And without speculating about the motives that Rosenstein has, it's entirely possible that Rosenstein put together that memo because he firmly believes that James Comey, you know, did something inexcusable with the Hillary Clinton investigation. That's obviously not the reason he was asked to write the memo. All of these these people who have kind of been 
brought in one way or another into the Trump administration, either by being nominated or because they were already part of the federal government, being kind of brought into this under this miasma of lies and a culture where lying is not only expected but demanded if it serves the president's aims. I mean, it's it. I maybe maybe that's not what it's like from the inside, but it's certainly the inability to trust people who were previously trustworthy because they've been used to serve these ends is what really throws me often. And you know, it's it's worth also noting that the sort of media aspect to this that, um, you know, I I would never say that. Barack Obama or or Hillary Clinton or or Nancy Pelosi, you know, never sort of tried to stretch the truth or or put a whopper out there. Um, but I think that when they did that, people, you know, p- people like me, frankly, who are sympathetic to their political point of view, when they would make a controversial claim that other people were saying, like, no, this is wrong, like, no, they're lying about this, I, I think. Liberal people would attempt to explicate the issue, you know, whether to say, no, actually, you know, this is defensible or, you know, no, it's not. Um, but to to acknowledge that, like, there was a controversy about this, that, that Barack Obama said – I mean, I, I think the sort of clearest example of this is Obama ran around the country saying his health care plan was going to lower people's premiums by – I forget what it was, Sarah – uh, but it was I think like it was twenty five hundred dollars. Twenty five hundred dollars. Um, and obviously premiums did not go down. Uh, many conservatives brought this up, and you know the White House was like, "Well, you know what we meant was that premiums would be lower relative to baseline, um, and right, some, like they would grow slower." Yeah, we didn't actually and, mean and they were some people. Down. I mean, I think I think uh, J- Jonathan Chait has been uh, relatively kind to this claim by Obama and can show you some charts and stuff, um, but. What nobody is doing is trying to say that, like, actually, yes, premiums are lower today than they were in 2008, because uh, that's clearly not true. You know, you can have different assessments of the policy, different assessments of the ethics of putting that claim forward, different assessments of like, well, what did Obama really say versus a, a paraphrase? But I feel like you have in the Fox and sort of Hannity Limbaugh zone of media, people who have decided to either just like tune out crazy things that get said from the administration or else echo them in the way that you would expect, you know, the the state run media in China, like does not scrutinize the public proclamations of the Chinese government. Like that's not what they're what they're there for. They're there to serve the state, not to serve the audience. And you would expect or would hope that conservative media is there to help conservative people be informed about what's going on in America. And they don't really act that way. You know, when when sort of Trump scandals are in the news, they cover something else. Or when Trump lashes out and says, um, oh, Obama was wiretapping my phones, they like find some way to make that be true. And it's created a very sort of disturbing to me kind of environment where, you know, you can run all the fact check columns that you want. But if people aren't hearing from news sources that they trust, you know, it's it's meaningless and trust is being, you know, violated. I mean, I don't think it's a there's no tenet of conservative ideology that says you can cut nearly a trillion dollars out of Medicaid without anybody losing 
coverage. I mean, the conservative viewpoint is that like you should that like you just you shouldn't have giant, expansive government programs in which tens of millions of people are getting free stuff. Um, And like two years ago, that was open. Like this was a thing that people disagreed about. And now you have Tom Price in this like fantasy world and, and Trump in this weird universe where he's trying to vindicate the, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton's email guidelines. And it's completely crazy. But unless people who have credibility as conservatives and an audience of conservatives want to tell people what's happening, it, it doesn't seem to me that it does much good. Well, this is what I think like where Congress, like ultimately over the next week, plays a really crucial role. And like, where do Republican senators and Republican House members where do they fall on like do they want to get behind Trump on this? Do they want to go against him? And I think that's going to be like the really key deciding factor because I think you're you're right. Like you'll see the executive it does not seem like a situation where someone else in the executive is going to stand up and say, like, no, like this does not make sense. Like, you know, this does not seem right. It really seems like we're seeing a few senators speak out, a few senators fall in line with the administration. But that seems like the kind of one release valve and check on this situation right now is what Congress wants to do. And I think like a few months ago, we would have said, well, like, of course, they're going to like stand up like this would be crazy to like, you know, um, go along with this and kind of parrot the arguments that are out there. But it seems, um, you know, it seems less clear that's that's what's going to happen and seems like the key thing to be watching over the next week or so. So I, I've recently been been renovating a house, and you know, in, in doing that, I, I wanted to you know learn more about architecture and design, lots of other things. And and thanks to Texture App, I've been able to to read magazines like Dwell that that deal with this kind of thing and get some inspiration, just get a little bit more context for for that kind of thing. And it's not something I I would ordinarily have been been able to do because those aren't necessarily magazines I would have lying around the house. Uh, but with the Texture App, you know, you get more than just your sort of narrow social feed. You get in-depth access to everything from The New Yorker, Time, The Atlantic, Vanity Fair, uh, anything in the world, all in one single app. Um, It's like basically all the major magazine publishers have come together to create this this great thing. So they deliver magazines, uh, but they deliver more than just the magazine. They have uh, discovery features, recommendations, exclusive interactive features, videos, and more. Uh, And they make it easy. And there's like tons of great titles out there. You can get Vanity Fair, Fast Company, Rolling Stone. National Geographic, like everything under the sun, all in one app. It's searchable. You check out back videos. You view bonus video contents. Whatever you want to do, or if you give it as a present, it's it's a great gift for anyone who likes to read. It's only $9.99 a month, which is a crazy good deal for over 200 magazines. Uh, but for an even better deal, you go to texture.com slash weeds and get a 14-day free trial. It was selected as one of Apple's top 2016 iPad apps. Uh, an iPad is a great sort of large screen format to see these beautiful magazine designs on. Uh, so check it out. 14-day free trial when you go to texture.com slash weeds. That's 14 days to try texture. Texture for free when you go to texture.com slash weeds, texture.com slash weeds. I think we have some weedsy topics. On a, we on a weedsier yeah, note. Get given, given that we'll see that over the next yes. week. Let's talk to you about <laughs> no, things you know, we it's, 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 you know, we, we always want it to be, you know, we, we want to be relevant to the news. But for all we know, by the time this is recorded, there'll have been like 12 other developments. Um, by contrast, the U.S.-Mexico border has been 
roughly where it is for what is it? When was the Gadsden purchase? <laughs> 1853 Gadsden purchase. Thank you, Bird. She All just right. came in our ear and told us that. So. The U.S.-Mexico border has been exactly where it is <laughs> since the Gadsden Purchase of 1853, um, which, uh, I don't know, it added some land to America, and good for us. Um, so the Trump administration wanted to build a wall. Yes. So Donald, Donald Trump promised to build a big, beautiful wall um, and, of course, to have Mexico pay for it. And while that's become it's become something of a punchline, there was, you know, when the when Congress agreed to fund the government through September a few weeks ago, uh, Trump briefly attempted to make this a deal breaker and say, oh, we're, we need billions of dollars or I'm not going to keep the government open. It quickly became apparent that neither Democrats nor Republicans had any particular desire to fund that. Um, so it's kind of dimly, I think, assumed that this was just rhetoric, that it was just a joke. Um but at the same time, the government has put out a couple of requests for proposals uh, for people to build prototypes for, you know, one prototype for a concrete wall and one prototype for a a wall that is built of something that is not concrete. Um, and those are going to, you know, in theory, those contracts are going to get handed out. Prototypes are going to get built somewhere around San Diego at some point in the coming months. It's clear that as policy, the Trump administration really does want to move forward on something that they're going to call a wall. So I think, you know, we need to, as much as everything that is happening in D.C. kind of sucks up a lot of energy, even when it doesn't necessarily get things done legislatively, it's important to think about the wall as something that doesn't necessarily need a big bite in Congress that is going to kind of move forward just as border security has been moving forward over the last 25 years really quietly without a whole lot of people noticing that there are lots more border agents and million, you know, hundreds well, of miles you of fences. talk about that a little yeah. bit more? Because I think I'm one of those people who expects a big fight in Congress over <laughs> this because Congress typically has to appropriate money for anything right. the executive wants to do. Like, what is the path forward where we end up with some version of wall, either one that is virtual or concrete or some other material that, you know, we don't end up with a large fight in Congress about whether they want to fund it or not. I mean, I think that it's it's not that they can do it without Congress. They can do the prototypes without Congress because that was in previous years money. But like it is a standard assumption in post 9-11 budgeting that you give Customs and Border Protection, which is the agency that runs Border Patrol and also kind of the infrastructure uh, along the border the money that it asks for and that you continue to increase the money that gets spent on border security. So there's likely going to be a fight if the Trump administration continues to insist on like these billions of dollar outlays for wall construction without kind of specifying what they want that wall to be used for. But at the same time, like when the Secure Fence Act was passed in 2006, there was this big bipartisan consensus that we needed hundreds of miles of fencing along the U.S.-Mexico border. And most of that has been built, at least as single fencing. Uh, there's an argument about what kind of fencing counts as proper fencing. Um, but there wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't like Democrats at the time. And yes, the politics were different, but it's also really hard to take a stand against, oh, well, we don't need anything in addition at the border. So there's there's definitely an incentive to find something, point to it and say, now we are doing what it takes to get border security done. So, I mean, you know, one one issue here that 
you know, is, is worth, I think, delving into is that, you know, wall is a is a good word of the English language. And in the context of, say, my house, I think we all understand the difference between the walls of my house and like the fence in, in the backyard. Uh, in the border security context, though, these are not like technical terms of art and 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 a lot can hinge on on the politics like i i remember uh quite a few years ago i was in israel when they were building their sort of border wall uh with palestine and for whatever reason the political imperative of at least the more moderate members of of the government at that time was to call it a fence and then you know you would see it and it's like well You've got several feet of concrete, and then you have a kind of aluminum thing projecting up. And then on top of the aluminum, there's like all this razor wire. And it's like, it's not much of a fence. So the U.S.-Mexico border is long. And there's a lot of different structures there, depending on where you're talking about, right? And so in urban areas, my understanding, at least what, what I saw near San Diego, my understanding of what's around El Paso, is that there like basically is wall. I mean, there's there's fencing that is thick enough that it's not, you know, easily cut throughable, right? right. At the same time, um, Border Patrol agents themselves actually, when the first fencing was built, it was actually made out of landing mats that they had as military surplus from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was like it, – it looked like a landing mat that you <laughs> stood on its end. It's very – and there's there's some of it that's still there. And Border Patrol agents went – we can't see through this. We can't see who's coming at us. We can't see if they're building anything on the other side to try to ramp up and over it. And we can't see if people are throwing rocks over it. And that's not – that does not make us feel safe. That does not make America safe. So there's an imperative and like this is why, you know, hours before the uh, contract was supposed to open at, at DHS, they added this, well, it doesn't have to be made out of concrete option because the idea of a concrete wall across the U.S.-Mexico border isn't something that the people who are patrolling it want. So this is – the thing you have to understand about Trump saying wall is that no one was talking about a wall before he was, which is why it was so politically successful for him. But now they have to figure out how to translate that into policy reality without seeming like they're flip-flopping. And it turns out that we actually do know a fair bit about where physical barriers are useful. San Diego and El Paso are both – like urban areas, it would be really easy for somebody to kind of just dive into a house once they've crossed the border there. You know, agents and analysts have said that fencing actually does have some use. When you're talking about wide open desert, it's arguably easier to catch people when it's an unfenced section and you know where people are coming through than where people can just kind of cut through fencing that and no one is going to notice because no one's patrolling that area because it's abandoned desert. So they they're kind of coming as you know as neophytes into a fairly advanced conversation about what's needed where and that's where you get the occasional like Trump saying that we don't or you know cabinet officials saying that we don't necessarily need fencing along the Rio Grande. There are parts of the Rio Grande where they you know where they do think that physical barriers would also be helpful after people swim over. But like in general, the places on the border that don't currently have a physical barrier are places where you have a river instead. Um, so as they kind of wend their way through that, you'll see more things like you know, insisting that a fence is a wall if there is, you know, something on the top of it or if it's anti-climb on in some places on the San Diego sector, they kind of 
the wall, the, the fence bends backwards so that it's harder to climb because the weight of the person will bend it more backwards rather than being than allowing them to climb over. There are definitely like technological advances that have been made and you know, that means that anything they could do to actually improve border security would be incremental. So it becomes a question of when does the Trump administration want to declare victory? Or are they just going to throw efficacy out the window and say, gosh, darn it, you know, the president made his name in constructing things. We're going to build an 18 foot tall concrete thing. We'll put cameras on it so that Border Patrol feels okay, And we're going to spend whatever it takes so that people feel safer because they have a wall because they didn't feel safe with the fence. So like, what would happen if we did that? Like, what would happen if we built like the classic (laughs) Trump 18 foot wall? Like, what does research tell us about what that does to immigration and to other things we might care about? So the last. So, I mean, the thing to remember here is that we already have a situation where people are not flowing across the border, right? Uh, net unauthorized migration is at or near zero. The real mover in people coming over the border without papers over the last few years have been families and children coming from Central America, most of whom are seeking asylum, which they can do at ports of entry. They do not have to cross the border illegally to to do that. So we're talking about such a small population that on the one hand, you're not going to have a huge effect on who's coming into the country without papers. On the other hand, the bright side is um, the last time we beefed up border security, well, when we beefed up border security from nothing in the late 80s, early 90s, it was during a time when there really were a lot of people who were coming across the border back and forth for work. They'd be in the U.S. for several months. Then they'd go back, give that money to their families in Mexico, put another, you know, add another room to their house, come back to the U.S. Um, when you started making that more dangerous because there were people on the border, there were beginning to be fences on the border. Instead of people just staying in Mexico, they made the journey once, settled in the U.S., uh, you know, got permanent jobs here and then often brought their, you know, sent for their families to join them in the U.S., which is a lot of how you get the extremely settled, unauthorized population we have today, where most people have been here for more than a decade, et cetera. Because they are already settled, if we added a wall now, <laughs> it's unlikely to settle them more, uh, which is, I think, the best thing you can say about this is that, you know, the massive unintended consequences that border security has had over the last 25 years um, that, that you know, don't get talked about when we talk about the need to secure the border, um, even though it, the, what we can say is that in general, border security has led to there being more unauthorized immigrants in the country, not fewer. However, because there already are a bunch and there doesn't appear to be this huge labor flow, a wall wouldn't make there be more. So we'd just be spending billions upon billions of dollars on this extremely small marginal policy benefit. And of course, you know, it's the the people who they're tr- ostensibly trying to get the smugglers the human trafficking networks the drug trafficking networks a lot of drugs already come through ports of entry um in general to clarify what that means you say drugs come through ports of entry means it's not like you have a truck full of cocaine and you're like sneaking it through some like the desert mystery right. zone in the yeah. desert. I mean, I mean, it happens. There and are I, trucks, I think trucks it was, full of I think pot sneak through mystery zones in the right. desert. But, uh, the, but then a typical, come a, through. a typical drug smuggling effort will be like you drive the truck up to the legitimate 
border yeah. check. They pop it open. The truck is full of something, you right. know, teddy bears, whatever. Right. And the drugs are hidden. Right. And the idea is that you're not sneaking like the vehicle past the whole surveillance apparatus. You're actually sneaking the, the drugs right. through the existing inspections regime. And the difficulty basically is that we want to have legal cross-border trade with Mexico. It's an important part of the American economy that various fruits and vegetables and car parts and right. – uh, other things flow through, and so you have a trade-off. You could subject everything to incredibly exacting searches, but that would disrupt, you know, right, people's supply right. chains. I mean, even business. even on the margin, you know, the the weights at ports are extremely like. There are many members of Congress who are like, "This is not. We're going to end up losing trucking business because people are waiting hours to get through." So. The decision that Customs and Border Protection agent faces uh, when inspecting a truck is, do I keep the rest of this line, you know, waiting and their tomatoes rotting in the heat? Or do I consider the possibility that there is actually cocaine in this truck that I'm not finding? It's it is it's a legitimately difficult policy question. It also is not going to be fixed if you build a physical barrier. Hi, Weeds fans. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the host of I Think You're Interesting, a new weekly podcast where I talk to someone from the world of arts and entertainment. Could be a really big name, could be somebody you've never heard of but should have heard of, could be somebody who's just about to break through, could be somebody from behind the scenes whose work you maybe haven't thought about before. The common denominator is that they're all people I think are interesting, hence the name of the show. You can find us on iTunes, you can find us on Android apps, you can find us basically anywhere you can find podcasts, and I hope you'll check us out. So uh, I'm going to be honest with you, uh, but before I, I had Meandies as a sponsor, I, I didn't think that much about underwear. I, I bought some five packs from the store. They were fine. They are fine. It's good enough. Uh, you can live life that way. Uh, but you can also live a better life with really comfortable, really well-designed underwear from MeUndies. Uh, you're going to feel good and you're going to feel good about yourself and you're going to you're gonna enjoy your day more. Um, so, so what is MeUndies? Okay, it, it's seriously soft, feel-good undies delivered right to your door. Uh, they're designed in LA and they're made from sustainably sourced micromodal. That's a, it's a special fabric that's three times softer than cotton. It, it's ridiculous, honestly, how soft it is. Um, so they come in an ever-changing selection of classic colors, bold shades and adventurous patterns so you can tailor your undies to your personal style. It's it's kind of fun. Uh, you know, nobody necessarily needs to see it, but it's still nice to know you've got a great design down there. And guess what? You can save time and money each month with a monthly subscription. And if you're not ready for subscription, that's okay. You can still save. Uh, MeUndies is offering 20% off your first pair. Just use our special URL, MeUndies.com slash weeds and get 20% off your first pair. So go ahead, revamp your underwear drawer. You deserve it. Your underpants deserve it. So once again, that's MeUndies.com slash weeds, MeUndies.com slash weeds. You said there's a small popula- a small inflow right now. Like, what are the actual, like, numbers? Border apprehensions at this point. Are, are, like, I mean, they're down something like 40% just since the beginning of the year. It's been, oh, it's, wow. it's one of the things, yeah, there's... And and a lot of that again though is um is Central American children and families. Like that's where the real change has been. So the extent to which the Trump administration's border strategy has been effective has been that people who would be coming here to seek asylum 
may in it's it's possible, it's a plausible explanation that they've successfully gotten the message that they cannot successfully seek asylum in the U.S. anymore. That might be a violation of international law, but it's an effective way to keep people from coming. So if that is the mechanism, then the case for the wall gets even weaker because that's not, you know, those policies have absolutely nothing to do with what's physically at the border. But we're talking about in even before that, a flow that is like, half to a third of what it was in 2000 um, or, you know, or even in 2006. It's it's something that is and I'm going to have to to look this up to get a sense of the absolute scale. Um, but it really is a it, it's a nominal number of people who are coming, especially coming for work. And you see that in the fact that people who actually live within 350 miles of the border are the Republicans who live in 350 miles of the border are the ones least likely to think that a wall is necessary, right? People who actually live there um, understand that there are security concerns with cartels, that you want to avoid the use of the border for organized crime, but that there isn't a widespread problem with waves of people coming over, which is kind of the mental image that gets inspired by politicians like Donald Trump um, and that kind of gets instilled in the minds of people who live in like Iowa. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think to to connect this to to what we were talking to earlier, right? That a, a just a, a huge element of this is Trump's habit of constructing, you know, potent narratives that are not tethered to reality in any kind of way. That if you had started your presidential campaign by saying, "I want to really put." border security on the table as like a first rate issue in American politics. I want to consult with experts on this subject, with real immigration hawks. You would have come up with a policy agenda, but like the centerpiece of the agenda wouldn't be a multi-billion dollar construction project in inaccessible desert regions to produce an output that the border patrol doesn't really favor because they want lines of sight, you would say some stuff that Trump has actually done, like, you know, be much meaner about asylum seekers coming from Central America. Um, but but what Trump did was he really took advantage of not being involved in the whole policy realm to just be like, what is it that like spooks people. And it's like this notion of a lack of control at the border, that it seems like a border should be a thing, but that in reality, a lot of the border is just kind of a river or some dust. And we know there are people who are here without permission. So it must be that they are, are flowing out of control and like a wall will will contain it, will make us safe. It it sounds safe. It feels safe. And he he ran on it and he ran with so with so little regard for anything. There was no moment during the campaign where he was like, okay, we're gonna get serious about this. He just kept talking about big, beautiful wall. And it, it just it has nothing to do with like what people who live in border areas want or even Border Patrol people are pretty enthusiastic about Donald Trump. It's not it's not really what they want. And it's a very it's unusual. I mean, it's it's again, it's it's not unheard of for a politician to have some rhetorical flights of fancy. But like he put his whole 
immigration pitch into this bucket that has like nothing to do with it. No, this feels super similar to like the Obamacare debate too, because like it was always like. Oh, repeal and replace Obamacare. Yeah, we're going to cover there was, everyone. But there was never like actually a concrete with concrete. There was never actually a concrete plan to get there. And it felt like this, like, again, like this rhetorical thing. We're going to repeal and replace Obamacare. And that's going to be great because everyone hates Obamacare. But never a like, and here's like a smart way to do it. There was never like that moment of like, and I'm going to consult with experts and I'm going to come up with like a great healthcare plan. Like you end up instead with this plan that like literally every healthcare organization opposes and in a weird way like i hadn't thought about it till you framed it that way matt but it feels like a very similar way of like make a big statement and like worry about the actual policy implications and implementation much later i mean this is in fairness this is not the first time in modern american political history that uh staff has been tasked with well, the politician has this talking point. It's doing really well. We need to come up with the policy that's going to correspond <laughs> to it. Like, this is a fairly well-established thing. I think that what distinguishes Trump is, A, the absolute policy ignorance that he started with so that a somewhat more canny politician might have avoided saying things like, we don't have a border now that would make it harder for him to then say, oh, we already have the beginnings of a wall or to, you know, glom onto work that was already being done. And the potency of the fears that he's tapped into. I think the real question here is, it is possible that Donald Trump could build a 30-foot section of wall, point to the wall and say, look, we built a wall. That's unlikely to happen. But it's certainly possible that Trump could, you know, get on board with the idea of this virtual wall and just spend a ton of money on surveillance and say, we have, you know, we have a wall. It's just high tech. Um, There are ways that Trump can declare victory here that are short of this massively impractical and also, let's be real, unlikely to get built in the time that Trump would be president, given that they there's still are like 100 cases about like border landowners trying to prevent the government from seizing their land under a law from a decade ago, you know, that that he could find a way to declare victory short of what he originally promised. But because he tapped into this extremely potent and real desire to see something and say, that's our border right there, it's not clear whether if he declares victory, the kind of conservative intellectual validators uh, who were so proud of him for saying wall would go along with him. You know, it's not clear that the Rush Limbaugh's and Laura Ingram's of the world would go along with him. And if not, it's not clear who his base, the people who were so excited when he talked about building a wall, who felt that he really was speaking truth to power, that no one else was going to protect them, like that that he wouldn't lose them by saying, oh, we have a wall, you just can't see it. But I mean, the, the true wall, in a lot of ways, I do think, like, is in our hearts. <laughs> and something that you saw on the economy soon after Trump took over is that people's self-reported beliefs about the economic situation changed a lot. And some of that is is naked partisanship, but some of that is like there was a desire on the part of Donald Trump to begin painting the ambiguous portrait of the American economy in a positive light. And he has really made an effort on that. I mean, since taking office, you hear way less about 
African-Americans living in hell or about, you know, how our factories have rotted away and we're not a wealthy country anymore. We hear uh, positive spin on the jobs reports and we hear, uh, you know, touting of factories opening and sort of ignoring of, of bad news stories. And that's fairly normal politics. You know, you become president, you, you take it away. There's a universe in which Trump does something similar on immigration that in addition to you know, he will spend some amount of money on border security. Something will be put in place that wasn't there before. Uh, but there's also, you know, uh, net migration from Mexico had dropped uh, enormously during the, the Obama presidency. Um, the Central American family is he seems to have maybe spooked them off. And you could imagine Trump trying to claim credit, not just for, you know, whatever barriers he puts up, but but to say, I have fixed this. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine that. But remember that Donald Trump is not the only Republican or conservative who has an incentive to continue to tap into this fear, right? Um, before, you know, the the kind of modern immigration politics that we have started with people attacking George W. Bush from the right. There's, you know, a, law, a year's tradition of Republican governors in Arizona and Texas making border security a big deal as they try to, you know, consolidate their political fortunes. So it's not just a matter of what makes sense for President Trump, but what makes sense for these other people who have made fear of people coming over the border into a powerful political weapon for them. We've talked about CISO before. It's this amazing online service to get like all the comedy you want uh, in, in all different kinds of ways. Jonah Ray is hosting a new travel show. It's pretty much, you know, it's it's what you would expect from a travel show hosted by Jonah Ray. It's packed with cameos from Jorge Garcia, Yvette Nicole Brown, Anthony Bourdain. Hidden America with Jonah Ray is a comedic journey through America where the places are real, but the people aren't. Plus, there's a murder investigation. You can stream the new season now on CISO. Um, and with them, you, you get unlimited access to CISO original series like that. You get late night, you get hilarious stand-up specials, plus you get binge-worthy classics. They've got 42 seasons of Saturday Night Live, the entire Monty Python catalog, a great British comedy called The IT Crowd, and even more out there. And of course, both seasons of Hidden America with Jonah Ray. Um, so, you know, to check all this out, you just go to CISO.com, S-E-E-S-O.com right now. You can sign up for one month free with promo code WEEDS at checkout. So then you got your free month, you watch all the comedy you want, they think you're going to love it, they think you're going to keep going. Going. And if you want to know the punchline, it's only $3.99 a month. No joke. $3.99 a month for all the comedy you want, anytime, anywhere, ad-free. So that's CISO.com, spelled S-E-E-S-O.com, promo code WEEDS, CISO.com, promo code WEEDS. What's the secret to a well-groomed guy? The Art of Shaving is the secret. It's founded in, in New York in 1996, and they've been helping guys look their best for, for over 20 years. Uh, you shave, at least I shave, a bunch uh, every week, multiple times, and it's nice to have really nice stuff to do it with. And that's what The Art of Shave offers you. They've got a total routine covered, whether shaving, uh, beer maintenance, uh, that's what I use, uh, hair, skin, body, or fragrance. Their award-winning products are formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients featuring pure essential oils. Uh, the four elements of the perfect shave been created to deliver smooth results every day. They've got a, a pre-shave oil that you can start with, then a thick, foamy lather with their shaving cream applied with a shave brush, then you can replenish moisture with an aftershave balm. You finish off the perfect shave with one of their five new fragrances, sandalwood and cypress, oud suede, 
vetiver citron, green lavender, and coriander and cardamom. Each cologne has been carefully assembled for a distinctive scent. The Art of Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service that allows you to save on your favorite products without ever having to worry. Our listeners will get 15% off their first order and free shipping by using the promo code WEEDS. To get this offer, you go online to theartofshaving.com, use our special promo code WEEDS to get 15% off your first order and free shipping. Visit theartofshaving.com for this special offer or for a consultation with a grooming expert, step into one of their many retail locations near you. All right. Time for a white paper? Yes. You have a white paper, Matt? I do. I like this paper because it's about a subject near and dear to my heart, <laughs> uh, inflation indices. Um, really one of the great subjects of all time. Uh, so this is brought to us, of course, National Bureau of Economic Research. Uh, the author is Bruce Sasserdote, I guess is how you say his name. Uh, he's, he's from Dartmouth, and he says, you know, we should look at this talk that there has been no wage growth in the bottom half of the income distribution since 1975, that that is a a thing that you see in the statistics. It is there loud and clear. Uh, But it's a little puzzling to actually see the sort of physical evidence of this stagnation. He writes that the average household uh, owns more cars than it used to, uh, lives in a larger house than it used to. And then on top of that, you have, I mean, famously, we all know we have more computers and smartphones and cable channels and stuff than we did in, in 1975. Um, so can it it really be that, you know, there's been no increase in, in living standards since this time? And then he writes about how you know, if you do quantitative measures of household consumption, uh, it appears to have gone up since since 1975, and that there are actually a lot of different questions about how you should calculate inflation. And if you use some of the other indices, they give you a more optimistic portrait of maybe it's been more like one percent growth over the past growth 30 in, or 40 in years. wages or cons- yeah, in, in, consumption. In, in, in in incomes. Um, okay, can you talk about our indices? We get to choose, or like like so, what's going on in these different? Well, so you know the indices, indices are are technical um, differences, but the 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 biggest difference is that the main index that we use uh, for these government statistics, the uh, consumer price index, is not chained. It's called um, so. What that means is that you look at what everybody bought in 1975, and then you look at what all that stuff would cost in 1976. And you sort of apply the number to it. More modern, up-to-date inflation indices use a practice called chaining. And it takes into account the fact that over time, what it is people buy changes. And that's not just substitution amidst like uh, qualities of, of particular things, right? But that like if the price of – I don't know what uh, you want to say um, – if the, if the price of cars falls a lot – People are going to start buying more cars, right? They're not just going to save money. They're going to say like, whoa, cars are really useful and now they're affordable. Uh, so it comes in. Or alternatively, you could have something cheap, right? Like you could have the like crappy like Parmesan cheese uh, that comes in thing and it gets a little bit – it gets a lot more expensive. And then the fancy more expensive cheese only goes up a tiny bit in price. You're going to start shading your consumption more toward – the fancy cheese because you're saving less money. Um, So in a chained index, this is like incredibly boring, but it's important. In a chained index, you take what people bought 
in the one year, and then you take what people bought in the later year and you average it together rather than than just projecting it forward. So with a chained index, you get that inflation is lower. Um, with inflation lower, you no longer get this zero wage growth result. And to some extent, it's not a big difference. If we were talking about, well, has it been 4% growth or has it been 5% growth? I think we would all say this is a boring question of statistical methods. But zero, I think, feels really special to people, right? If you were to say, okay, the bottom half of American households have seen literally no growth in income over 40 years, that's like a mind-blowing, oh my God, the entire American economic model is completely failing. Whereas if it's like growth has been slower since 1975 than it was before, but people are still better off than they were a generation ago, that sounds kind of nice. And that's where, like, the bedrooms and the cars come in, right? Like, the idea that, like, people are actually consuming more. People have more stuff, yeah. This is this is my basic not-an-economist question. Um, but especially in this kind of post-mid-20th century, you know, post-Eisenhower model where most of what people consider – most of what affluent people are going after is not more stuff, right? And most of the conversations about what makes someone – you know, emotionally stable or emotionally secure aren't about basic consumer goods. What's the actual normative argument for measuring income based in consumption and especially consumption of these like relatively basic consumer goods rather than in something like, you know, ability to withstand a sudden economic shock or in, you know, total savings or in, you know, educational attainment over time, something like that? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a good question to ask. I mean, I, I think you do see educational attainment has risen, life expectancy has risen. So that's all sort of positives. Um, it's also true, though, that savings rates have fallen a lot. Right. Um, that was my question about this paper is like, maybe people are just buying more shit, but they're also not saving a lot of money, which gives them a lot of anxiety and unease. Right. I mean, which I think is a real question. And I think there's not you know, he obviously mentions that inequality has risen, and his sort of takeaway is, well, inequality has risen, but people in the lower half are better off anyway. Um, but, you know, I, I think you have to think about the psychological mechanism of this, right? If you feel yourself – if if you want to say, like, like most people do, right, you have like slightly aspirational view of the world, and you would like to be above average – but you are, in fact, a little bit below average. And the gap between being slightly below average and your aspirational ideal keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger each year. Like, you're going to feel like you're falling behind, whether or not, in some sense, the number of bathrooms in your dwelling has increased. Well, and right, you have I mean, way more information to compare yourself to other people, yeah. too. That's something that was like brought up very quickly at the end of this paper, was like trying to understand, like, this disconnect between people in the lower half of the income distribution getting more cars, more bedrooms, but like feeling worse off. And one of the things that's also going on, there's just like an ability to like look at a lot of other people's lives in much more depth than you would have been able to like 20 or 30 years ago and see like, oh, well, I have like four bedrooms. But like, look at this guy who has like 20 bedrooms or however many, you know, McMansion bedrooms someone might have. It's like another thing, you know, that you're not just comparing, you're comparing yourself against a lot more information about what other people's lives might look like elsewhere. I mean, I am sympathetic to kind of both sides in the, in you know, what 
is basically the growth versus inequality debate that you guys are talking about, right? That like you're going to have, unless you are doing forcible leveling, you're going to have inequality even if everyone's lives are improving over time. And so to say, well, the people at the bottom, you know, there are still people at the bottom is kind of tautological. But I think that there's also kind of a like wealth versus wealth thing going on that if you ask people what does, you know, what would it take for you to be happier they are not necessarily going to say, well, I don't have as much as that other guy. But like there's been so much research that I think all of us are familiar with on the kind of psychological and public health effects of feeling unable to unsure about whether you're going to make your next rent check, unsure about what would happen if you got sick, that that kind of lack of cushion, even absent the idea that somebody else might have more is really coming coming into focus as an important part of what it means to be unwealthy in America and failing to pay attention to that i think in terms of oh you know if they if they've been able to buy a you know a nice television then they must be doing okay kind of it it take it it begs the question on what it means to experience being low income in a way that, you know, maybe there's a better answer to that, even if we don't, even if we do assume that, yes, people will always feel worse off than their neighbors. I, I mean, I do think it, it all suggests, you know, that there should be more research and more thought into what are we doing policy wise that is impacting how people make personal financial decisions because you know we we know that the savings rate has fallen fairly steadily over decades we know that people say subjectively that they are you know living on the, on sort of the edge financially and we also do know though that consumption particularly of a lot of durable goods has risen and it seems it seems like it is not like making people happy in life that actually people would rather Particularly if if you could keep up with the Joneses by getting everyone to have smaller houses and fewer cars, but more savings, that we would be a collectively like happier and more psychologically healthy sort of group of people that nobody would need to lose relative position. And that with consumption goods, I think relative position matters a lot. But with sort of basic security and exposure to risk, it, it doesn't matter nearly as much. We really could like all feel more secure in our finances. But instead, we've put a lot of effort into sort of democratization of consumer credit. Uh, you know, you have sort of credit cards everywhere. There's been a lot of emphasis on making mortgages available to more and more people. And there's been very little emphasis on making uh, sort of attractive, prudent savings vehicles uh, available to people, particularly for things outside the the retirement context. It's obviously important to save for your retirement, but people also just worry, you know, you could be 33 and something bad could happen to you and you don't want to be, you know, stripped of, of everything that that you have. And and things like 401ks and stuff don't, don't help you with, with any of that, with just sort of providing yourself with buffers. I want to circle back to the indices for a moment, because I think uh. those actually like it is a helpful reminder reading this paper what different conclusions one can come to depending on what index you're you're using. And I think this is a part of academic papers that I and probably other listeners might be guilty of like skipping over where they say we use this index and you just read that and you say, oh, OK, they're academics. They're just, you know, 
doing the thing that they do. But a lot of our, you know, understandings of big cultural and economic things that are happening are really influenced by decisions researchers are making about these kind of really seemingly small changes. But like one of the things they go through in this paper here is they try out four different indices and they all lead to like different kind of assumptions about how well this group of people is doing. And I mean, I took that as like an important and helpful reminder for reading academic research. I mean, I think that the two are the things you're talking about are kind of two sides of the same coin, right? That there are so many things that are measured as part of the health of an economy or the, uh, you know, the progress or stability of individual people in an economy that's defining people as consumers, right? Where the the fact that all of these are based on what goods are people buying as a measure of their income, you know, the idea of economic activity in terms of transactions as the way that we define the health of a nation's economy. It's all none of that is going to lead to metrics that are going to lead in the policy directions that Matt's talking about. Right. All of those are going to lead to a world in which as long as people are buying stuff, they're OK. Right. Like my house is actually better when we don't buy a lot of stuff because it means we're saving more money for the house we would like to buy. And like yep. It feels more stable when we are not buying new cars. But that's not going to show up in the indices, dude. Ah, they get you. No, but I, I also do think that the psychological power of zero is like always worth paying attention to here. Because when you when you know you are dealing with subjects that are uh, amenable to sort of measurement dispute. It's worth asking yourself, if you're just describing the situation, how much are you hanging on the zero-ness of it, right? That One of my favorites from the, from the campaign trail was that both uh, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump had a line they like to use about how American families haven't gotten a raise since 1999, uh, by which they meant that median household income as adjusted by the consumer price index, was below the 1999 level. Uh, So that's data that was being reported with an 18-month lag. It's data that was being done with a particular price index rather than another one. It's data that also doesn't account for uh, demographic effects. There's many more retirees in 2015 than there were in 1999. But at any rate... With appropriate qualifications, it's true. Median household income was lower than it was in 1999. When next year's data comes out, it is almost certainly going to show that median household income rose slightly, which will mean that it's not just higher than it was in 1999, but it's higher than it has ever been in the history of the United States. Um, So we're going to go from you haven't had a raise since 1999 to Americans are wealthier than they've ever been in all of recorded history. And you're talking about almost no actual change, right? Like you you can dispute the number one way or another, but everybody knows that between 2015 and 2016, it was like things maybe changed a little, but you flip past a certain zero point and it's like the story that can pass a fact-checking column – you know, suddenly becomes radically different. Now, of course, if you use these other indices, we were better off than ever before uh, back in 2015, too. So it's just like there's a real... There's a lot of mischief that can be made around these kind of arbitrary cutoff points. Indices matter, man. You don't get enough attention. Indices. Love it. All right. right. I think that's where we end. With that, um, thank you. Thank you for listening. Uh, Thanks uh, to to our producers, uh, Bird Pinkerton and, and Peter Leonard. 
check out our Facebook group. Yes. Absolutely. The Weeds. Uh, we'll have more uh, exciting discussions there. Uh, tell us uh, what, what, what you think about tell James Comey. Tell us about Comey, your favorite index. About your favorite inflation indices. I like the harmonized index of consumer prices that they use in Europe, although its treatment of housing is odd. Make, me, right. make me a quilt of it. We'll continue the conversation on Facebook, and, and we'll see you guys next week. Next week. <laughs>